0: Hello. Look, it's been an amazing season on the podcast so far, and it's just been great to hear from those of you who found this information helpful. And I want to thank those of you so much who've been reviewing the podcast, leaving a review on iTunes. It honestly, it it just helps so much in getting the podcast to reach more people and sharing this resource with others who need to hear it. And I'm also so, so grateful that you're getting this podcast out there. I have people get in touch and tell me that they're sharing it with anyone who's willing to listen Um, and particularly the Rebuild and Build Better season. I know that there's um, listeners who have shared it into community groups or Facebook groups, or those kinds of things, where people are rebuilding after bushfires uh, in order to get the the help to the people that need it. So, you know, I'm just I'm completely blown away by how far this podcast can reach, and just full of incredible gratitude to you for listening and for sharing it and for subscribing and for tuning in each week. And it's just it's just it blows my mind, and uh, I just. I just love to know that homeowners all over are learning how to get it right with Undercover Architect. Now, in mid-September, I attended the Australian Bushfire Building Conference. It was a conference that was held in the Blue Mountains, but they opened it up to virtual attendance, which was really fantastic, actually. And it was two days of incredible speakers. There were so many insights shared, such a lot of great information. And I wanted to recap what I learned on the podcast here as well so I could share it with you. So in this episode and the next I'm going to be sharing the highlights and the big takeaways from the conference and frankly there's something here for everyone. So let's dive in. Welcome to Get It Right with the Undercover Architect. This is the podcast all about designing, building or renovating your home. I'm your host Amelia Lee Think of me as your secret ally, I am on a mission to help you create a home that makes your life better, whoever you're working with and whatever your dreams, your location or your budget. Together we'll uncover the nitty gritty of how to get it right and how to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in. So join me now. Welcome to season 12 of the Get It Right podcast called Rebuild and Build Better. This season includes a range of conversations with some fantastic experts and professionals and we're diving into a range of topics related to rebuilding after bushfires, building or renovating in bushfire prone areas and more generally designing and building more resilient homes. This season of the podcast has been inspired by one of our Undercover Architect course members who has over 20 years experience in disaster recovery and saw the need, given our recent summer bushfires in Australia, for a resource to help people rebuilding their homes after bushfire. He's been a great help to me in connecting me with information and people I can now share with you. You can see video versions of all of our interviews as well as get a copy of the full transcripts plus loads more helpful resources for your journey on the Undercover Architect website. Head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild for all the info you need to rebuild and build better. Now let's get on with the episode. Okay, let's get on with this episode. Now, firstly, I wanted to mention this. Something that I felt in my research of rebuilding after bushfires and all the resources that I've gone through is that the approach to providing information, resources and recovery efforts and spending, to me, it feels very state-based and done on a state-by-state level. Now, I may not have the whole picture, very happy to admit that. But as I've dug deeper into the resources that I had access to and I've spoken to various professionals and people who are involved in this work and have been involved for, you know, over the long term, I'm really interested to see how much of that work seems to be concentrated on a state by state level. There are definitely nationally based organizations that are helping and providing relief and doing research and assessment. You know, the CSIRO for example, and Justin Leonard in particular, uh, you know, providing really pivot, they're, they're pivotal in assessing and collating data in relation to bushfires and the, uh, and the aftermath and what can be done to create better resilience and protection, especially in our buildings. And of course, there's a raft of national organizations that are providing help and financial support to those that are impacted and to assist the recovery effort. But at a state level, there's, you know, state-based disaster recovery teams, there's state-based assistance, there's state-based departments providing information, resources and help. And there's also loads of community-based efforts as well. Now, I can completely understand the need for localising how advice is tailored, how, how help's given, how financial support is given, and having a targeted approach that's based on those state-based locations. And, you know, I suspect that you know, a lot of this is volunteer run. A lot of it is, you know, probably better resourced at a state level. It's more simple to resource at a state level. But I do, I do really wonder sometimes how much overlap is happening between all of these organisations and and how all of that learning and efforts that's happening at an individual level can actually be coordinated and collaborated at a federal level of understanding. You know, how much that communication and interaction might actually occur between all of them. And what could ultimately be leveraged for greater impact in efforts generally, and also in informing what we do next and how we move forward. You know, this isn't just about this industry. I know that this happens in loads of industries and practices in Australia. I know how much it frustrates me that the construction industry is so state-based. Builders licensing is done on a state-by-state level. My architectural registration is state-based. It just seems... It seems really crazy to me and quite counter to being able to leverage, you know, spending and investment, research efforts, legislative measures, just to have a greater impact on a national basis and to stop duplication and time-wasting, just to streamline things overall. So the conference that I'm going to be talking about in this episode, it was called the Australian Bushfire Building Conference. And I was really grateful to hear from so many, you know, speakers from all around Australia at this event, incredible expertise and experience was shared during this conference but again I noticed how much of their information and the resources were being dealt with at a state by state level you know really useful information and resources that I really hope are being cross-pollinated into other states through avenues and i just I suppose I have to trust that they are it's very hard to sort of get behind the the doors sometimes and understand how much organizations might talk to each other across state borders and what might be going on and i i do suspect that a conference like this enables a lot of that connection and cross-pollination as well so that can be super helpful now why do i mention this whole thing about being state based well it's largely so that you know you just don't you don't have to just dismiss something because it's happening in a different state You know, sometimes it can be a great way to resource information that you can then see if it can be applied to your location. I know that I've learned a lot from seeing how things are done in specific localities and then translating them across to other places, you know. It's always good to be able to say, hey, would this be possible here? And be able to ask the question. So back to the conference. It was held in the Blue Mountains in September, but due to COVID, virtual tickets were also sold. And that was how I attended. I sat at home. And uh, it was fantastically run. It was actually one of the best virtual events I've ever been to. Everything ran on time. It was extraordinary. So, And in fact, I believe that around 280 people attended virtually compared to the 70 who were there in person. The Blue Mountains is located in New South Wales. And as cited during the conference, the most it's the most bushfire prone area in Australia for properties with 73% of properties in the area are on bushfire prone land. So, the speakers at the event, they were largely from New South Wales, but there were other speakers that were presenting virtually from other locations around Australia, and they covered a huge range of topics. And honestly, the amount of experience that they had in this area was just uh, it was just extraordinary. it was was really amazing to see this concentration of expertise and experience in building for bushfire resilience and um, understanding bushfires in one place. The conference was, it was heavy. You know, I think that with the year 2020 has been, the immediacy of just what so many people went through during the Black Summer fires of 2019, 2020, and have also endured in past fire events as well. Look, it may seem like a distant memory for many of us, but it was quite confronting to be reminded of the intensity, the scale, the sheer destruction that those fires caused, you know, lots of images that were shown, what firefighters and volunteers and local communities were dealing with and are dealing with now and facing those fires and you know those that are on their recovery paths now. I thought it would be worthwhile to take you through the big highlights and the big learnings for me, the big ahas that I felt would be really relevant to anybody who's rebuilding or who's wanting to build a better, more resilient and bushfire resistant home. So that's what this episode is all about. And I'm just going to go through some of the speakers and outline some of the things that I learned and things that I think were worth sharing. So firstly, Rob Rogers. So Rob Rogers is the commissioner of the New South Wales uh, Rural Fire Service. Um, He actually provided the opening keynote of the conference. Now, Rob was appointed to the role of commissioner in July 2020 after Shane Fitzsimmons stepped down. Now, Commissioner Fitzsimmons was somebody that everybody in New South Wales is probably very familiar with. He was on, he did a daily update on the fire situation pretty much every day on television during Black Summer. And he, he really became this calm, reassuring voice in a very high stress time. Very appropriately, Shane's now taken on the role of heading up Resilience New South Wales, which is the lead disaster management agency for New South Wales, and responsible for all aspects of disaster recovery and building community resilience to future disasters. And Shane was actually at the conference, so I've got a a couple of things to mention that I learned from him. But Commissioner Rogers had had been the Deputy Commissioner since 2011, serving with uh, Shane Fitzsimmons, and then took on the role as Commissioner in July 2020. Commissioner Rogers actually spoke of how unprecedented the black summer fires were in New South Wales. Now, this is a word that we've heard a lot this year. However, you know, he actually said it's warranted. He'd never seen anything like this fire season in 40 years of work. The amount of fire, the extreme weather conditions, the drought, the number of ignitions, you know, this combination was at a scale that was previously unseen. It was not normal to be issuing emergency warnings at 3am in the morning. And that was happening on New Year's Eve. And he said almost every fire became an established fire that was really difficult for the brigades to put out. Commissioner Rogers spoke about the building impact assessment that's occurred in New South Wales. And I know this would have occurred in other states as well, but he was only able to speak about New South Wales. So in New South Wales, this was a collaborative effort between the EPA, Crown Lands, Public Works Council and the RFS. And it involved ground crews, trail bikes, drones, boats and military helicopters traveling into regions that had been impacted by the fires and assessing what the building impact had been. So, you know, there were some small localities which lost over 50% of their homes. So hugely impactful for some of these, you know, smaller regional areas. This building impact assessment was completed in March 2020. And it it was really about giving people some assurity of what happened to their property and because some of them had not been able to return, and also being able to collect data to then determine what worked and what didn't to then inform future efforts. Now, in New South Wales alone, 41,000 structures were assessed. So that, you know, it's a huge number of, of, of structures and, and dwellings and um, those types of things. And so, you know, but one of the stats that really, really blew me away was that 255 homes or 10% of homes in New South Wales that were destroyed, they were not in bushfire-prone land at all. So it was hypothesised that these homes may have been, uh, there may have been homes that were alight in the buffer zone and then under extreme conditions, they lit up the homes that were not in the bushfire-prone areas. Um, You know, the embers can travel kilometres ahead of fire fronts. You've got extreme weather conditions occurring at the time as well. So, But, you know, still 255 homes destroyed that were not in bushfire-prone areas at all. Now, of the remaining homes that were destroyed in New South Wales, there were 59% that were within vegetation and then 31% that were within the vegetation buffer. So that was sort of the split of statistics. 59% within vegetation, 31% were within the vegetation buffer, and then 10% were not in bushfire-prone area at all. Now Commissioner Rogers spoke about the rebuilding effort and what the New South Wales RFS are trying to do to streamline built rebuilding efforts due to the scale of the rebuild that's required, it's just not been possible to mobilise efforts into individual communities in the same way as what's happened in the past. And of course, COVID certainly made that difficult as well. So to help this, the New South Wales RFS have actually been developing maps for the affected areas to identify at a mapping level what the bushfire attack levels are and to set some criteria so that the development applications for rebuilding can work to those parameters and not get tied up with delayed approvals. Ordinarily, you'd have to submit your development application, go back to the RFS for review on an individual basis. But they're they're trying to deal with this being done at a more generalised level through this mapping and through streamlining the development application process. They're also doing some pretty um, interesting things. They're looking at setbacks, uh, actually including neighbouring land. So ordinarily, your setbacks measured to your boundary, Uh, to try and help people with rebuilding. And this is just for people who are rebuilding after losing their home in those bushfires. They're looking at the setbacks, including the neighbouring lands, and then also having ongoing inspections to look at the maintenance of asset protection zones as well and how they can build in those inspection points to ensure that maintenance is occurring. Now, this is all in an effort to try and streamline the wider rebuilding efforts. And as I said, at this stage, it's only for those rebuilding after the Black Summer fires in New South Wales. The RFS and and Commissioner Rogers said, you know, they actually recognise that the healing process is enormous when it's done as a settlement-wide response. Um, There's been lots of examples where communities have been impacted by bushfires in the past and it's taken sometimes years for people to be able to rebuild because of the planning legislation hoops they've had to jump through. So they've recognised that being able to get people uh, to streamline their application processes um, will be helpful. So this map-based approach is designed to do that and to also minimise the planning costs as well. So if you're in New South Wales and you're rebuilding after losing your home in the Black Summer bushfires, Uh, Check with your council to see if the RFS bowel maps have been finalised because uh, Commissioner Rogers said that they were hoping to have them sorted ASAP when he presented at the conference. It was asked of him whether this was happening in other states and he wasn't able to advise. So it would be really awesome to know if these maps are actually getting created in other impacted areas outside of New South Wales because I can see how much it would help expedite the rebuilding efforts for those involved and actually just be really interesting exercise to see how much that can help people have certainty around what their rebuilding is going to be and it not be at the whim of um, what might be happening on their individual property and it could also actually help set up a much better approach overall as well. You not have people rebuilding without approval and those kinds of things and building homes that then endanger the other neighbours around them. So it'd be a really interesting exercise, I think. Now, Shane Fitzsimmons, uh, as I said, he's the past New South Wales RFS commissioner and now Head of Resilience New South Wales. He spoke about the recovery efforts in New South Wales and gave us a lot of figures on how much had already been spent, what was being done, who was being helped and those kinds of things. And I won't go into detail on that, but one of the interesting things that he did mention was that they're nearing finalisation of a modular homes panel So this is a group of pre-approved 28 modular home providers that those who are rebuilding can actually have greater confidence in working with. They're seeing that as a really great way for people to be able to rebuild more efficiently. Now, he didn't share any details about uh, who this modular homes panel is or the criteria with which they've assessed them for that pre-approval. But I'm really excited to see what comes from that because I think modular homes can be really tricky for uh, banks to give finance on and for some councils to approve but they have such potential for so many locations and budgets so I'm really keen to see what comes of this and what it might help how it might help just generally the modular homes industry on a larger scale to have sort of that level of acceptance and pre-approval happening I think that could be really interesting for the industry overall. Now, Justin Leonard from the CSIRO was also there. Justin's someone I've been trying to get on this season of the podcast for some time because he is the voice when it comes to building in bushfire-prone areas Uh, He's dedicated his 26-year research career to the understanding of how bushfire risk to life and infrastructure can be managed. But as you can imagine, especially in the aftermath of the Black Summer fires and the Royal Commission, Justin is a busy, busy man and uh, we've almost been there a few times but we've just not been able to lock down a time. So it was brilliant to hear from him at the conference and I'll also pop some resources to find Justin and he's got lots of resources online that share his wisdom and his knowledge. So I'll pop those in the resources. Now, one of the common themes that coming from these recent fires and that I've spoken about on the podcast before is that the Black Summer fires actually provide an opportunity to see how the BAL ratings, our bushfire attack level ratings, which were introduced in 2009, how they actually perform in the face of real bushfires such as what we've had because there are now homes built to these BAL rating standards that have been subjected to fire conditions. So everybody was really keen to see what the findings might have been and Justin said that this research is still underway. However, given the percentage of building loss that happened outside the designated bushfire-prone areas, his feeling was that it's statistically significant enough to increase the buffer distance beyond 100 metres, which is what's currently required to say, he said, for example, 300 metres. So it's going to be interesting to see what recommendations come out of the research and also out of the Royal Commission and how that may impact the planning legislation in the future in areas that are adjacent to bushfire-prone land. So it may be that you you actually have to check whether you're within, you know, a certain range of bushfire-prone land, not just have a bushfire overlay on your site. Look, it's always worthwhile that you remember to review planning legislation for your site generally because it can change. And this is the thing I think that's caught out a lot of people in the past It's not just the case with bushfire building codes. This is across the board. I see lots of homeowners that work from the advice that they might have got when they purchased their property five or ten years ago, you know, only to find that it's changed quite considerably. So it's, it's always worthwhile that you keep up to date with changes that are being made to your local council rules and general regulatory legislation for your area so that it doesn't come as a nasty shock either during the design or the construction phase of your home. Now, another fantastic presentation was given by Dr. James Davidson and Clive Barpey. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Clive, from JDA Co. So JDA Co, they're one of the leading climate adaptive architecture practices in Australia, and they're based in Brisbane, I believe, and James himself has, over the last decade, become Australia's leading flood resilience architect. Now, some time ago, JDA Co were commissioned to write the Flood Resilient Building Guidance for Queensland Homes for the Queensland State Government. Now, this is a resource that you can access online. I'm going to pop it in the resources for you. And um, they also wrote the Flood Resilient Home Building Design Guideline for the Gold Coast City Council. And they're also currently managing the rollout of the Flood Resilient Homes Program for the Brisbane City Council. Now, in 2020, JDA Co. expanded from the field of flood resilience into the field of bushfire resilience, which James said is actually very similar to flood resi- resilience, which that may seem counterintuitive given that flood is about water and bushfire is about flame. But, you know, I've seen the same thing. There's lots of parallels in in the actual approach to creating building resilience And so JDA Co are currently developing the Bushfire Resilient Building Guidance for Queensland Homes. It's a mouthful, isn't it? They're doing it together with the CSIRO and the Queensland Reconstruction Authority. This guide is still in draft form and I asked them if it was going to be available soon and they said that they were hoping it would be available by the end of the year. And I also asked whether other states were going to be doing a version and they couldn't say. So again, state by state. So I really do hope that it becomes something other that other government agencies take on. It's shaping up to be a really great resource and it would really make sense for other locations in Australia to be able to leverage this resource and be able to build on it and make it applicable for their state um, information rather than you know reinventing the wheel. Now the guide is it's a it's considered a best practice guide so it's not a list of minimum code requirements because of course you've got the Australian standards for that. You know and I think that guides like this are super helpful for translating the Australian standards into pragmatic applications that actually make sense to you as the homeowner and that your, your designer can work with. So you know James actually said the building codes and the Australian standards they're often focused on the application of things on the design after it's done. And so that's why a lot of homeowners find bushfire resistant homes so expensive to build because they do the design first and then, you know, they hit the need of the the Australian standards and the bushfire building codes and all these measures sort of get applied to be able to meet the code rather than them, you know, thinking about the design holistically from the outset and also thinking about the whole site and not just the house in isolation. So this guide is actually intended as a series of tools to assist designers with decision-making. Classification is done via via fire hazard type. So fire hazard types include ember, radiant heat, bushfire flame front contact, surface fire, consequential fire, tree strike, wind or debris accumulation. And the levels of protection that were outlined actually take into account the bowel level or the bushfire attack level and also help with the integration of design and landscaping methods as well. So we actually got to see inside the draft version. It's a really lovely, you know, easy to interpret graphic document. They've clearly got a skill at being able to put together documents like this. There's flow charts, there's examples to follow based on whether you're building new or you're renovating um, or retrofitting an existing house. They had sort of two case scenarios for each type and there's also help with choosing frame types. There was a table of materials comparing the advantages and disadvantages, different material types. Also information about landscaping design and plant selection and then also maintenance requirements as well. So what was particularly interesting that James mentioned was that it's actually been found that building and retrofitting homes for flood resilience has lowered insurance premiums. And so the hope is that the same idea will translate into bushfire resilience, resilient homes as well. And for anybody who's building or retrofitting their home to be more bushfire resilient. So... I'm going to pop a link in the resources for the Flood Resilience Guide and just watch this space for the Bushfire Resilient Building Guide too. I hope that we'll get news soon that it's been published and that it's good to go. Now, there were some really great questions that were asked throughout the conference as well. There was a couple of panel sessions and, um, you know, there was there was actually a really fantastic interaction from the virtual audience. It was really well handled and really well moderated by the event organisers and the MC. And one question that really stood out to me was a question by somebody named Carl Bauman, um, who said, there is a stark difference between regulation around existing and new housing in high-risk areas. You can buy and live in an existing tinderbox house built to a very low standard with zero defendable space or mitigation. But you could be refused permission to build a new home to bushfire attack level or BAL 40 next door, with defendable space and bushfire shelters. How can regulators address this discrepancy if protection of life is a great priority? It's a great question, isn't it? And it's something that everybody who is moving into these areas and trying to build new homes is dealing with, that their neighbour can have, you know, a house that would go up like... A set of matches compared to, and they're being required to build to such a significant level. And the fact that the neighbour's house can go up so quickly can have an impact on them and their ability to maintain bushfire resistance on their property. So, you know, I think this is at the crux of a lot of what we're dealing with in a lot of areas that are impacted by bushfires, and especially in regional communities where property prices might be lower, you know, dwellings may be self built or even unapproved. Now, the thing is that there's not a lot of incentive for real estate agents to drive that due diligence around bushfire at the point of purchase. I don't necessarily hear real estate agents making that a selling point. So, you know, many of the speakers actually spoke about the importance of checking these things at the point of purchase and an idea of a bushfire certificate or some type of bushfire declaration at the point of purchase was also raised. A few few speakers sort of floated that idea. It's something that's um, been spoken about in the past by people in the industry so you know, ultimately that future purchase uh, purchases, they're informed of the risk when they're securing the property and they also understand the ongoing maintenance and the management that's required to maintain bushfire resistance on the property because it's not just how it's built but it's also that maintenance of the asset protection zone and any other measures that have been incorporated as part of building in bushfire resistance to the property overall. You know, I think that given the purchase of a home is often the most significant investment that we make, we actually get very little information at the point of purchase. Um, You know, I, I know that my husband and I, we not only spent a lot of time looking at planning legislation online before purchasing any of our homes, but with our current property, we ended up inside council at our local council offices before purchasing, before even putting an offer on the place. Speaking to various team members, you know, understanding what the previous records of the property, the previous approvals of the property that were existing, you know, what information they had for us, what was going to be involved in the property, should we take ownership of it. And this is not customary for people to do in their pre-purchase research. I'm very aware of that. So, you know, and it's not something that's covered by conveyancing solicitors either. And there were, there's been lots of ideas, I've heard loads, loads of ideas about uh, what type of information should be provided. There's even been sort of trials done, energy efficiency certificates, those kinds of things. I believe Canberra, you get an energy efficiency certificate of some sort when you purchase a home. But I think that that bushfire information for specific properties would be super helpful for purchasers just to have a better understanding on the risk management that's going to be required when they purchase a home be able to insure it properly, be able to know um, what they're dealing with when they're taking on a property like that. Now, lastly, I want to speak about a fantastic speaker who was Sam Vivas from Viva Living Homes. So Sam actually spoke on the topic of natural building materials in bushfire zones. Sam is a builder himself and Viva Living Homes is an environmental straw bale building company. So Sam has got 23 plus years experience in building homes And for the last 19 years, he's built straw bale and earth homes, building 50 plus straw bale and earth homes and also three of his own. He currently lives in a straw bale and earth home as well. So what was really interesting was just learning about how much natural materials actually provide huge opportunities for bushfire resilience. Of course, though, the challenge is that it can often be difficult to find local people in your area that have experience in working with them. Um, And also, if there are people in your area, another challenge can be getting on their timeline because they're usually really, really busy. But I want to take you through some of the information that Sam shared on natural building materials because it was a really good, um, simple rundown and gave some really good information. So firstly, rammed earth. Look, this is pretty much as it sounds, earth rammed in between forms that create wall panels. The earth is cement stabilised and through compaction, it becomes super strong and bushfire resistant building material as well. And it's absolutely stunning. Um, And it's something that's being much more commonly used. So you're probably familiar with it as well. Mud, brick or adobe, they're another alternative. And they include an aggregate and reinforcing products such as straw. They can be made as mud bricks in actual form or they can be freely built by stacking blobs of adobe clay mix on top of each other. Hempcrete, which I actually spoke about with Dick Clark and Andy Marlowe in a recent podcast episode in this season. This is where the stem of a hemp plant is cut up and it's bound together with lime and sand binders. the structure of the building is generally a timber frame and then the lime product is put between forms and is, uh, is tamped. So Sam said the quality of the product actually relies on the tamping. So if you want an insulative product, you need to tamp lightly. If you want thermal mass, you tamp more strongly. And the product is then finished with lime render. Now straw bales which is obviously Sam's passion they're another alternative and with straw bales rice or wheat straw is used. It's the leftover stuff from cereal harvests and it's then compacted and earth renders are used on the inside of the home and then lime renders are used on the outside of the home to seal the straw bales and to weather protect them at war material generally. Now Lastly, Sam spoke about a product that his company has created and is using in their projects. And this is a straw panel. It's infilled with straw stubble. It's compacted and rendered in a factory. And then it's brought to site and installed with machinery in a modular way. So you know, as far as I could see, this product is very different to DuraPanel. DuraPanel is another straw panel that's incredibly fire resistant, can be used for internal wall linings and ceiling linings as well, instead of plasterboard. The product that Sam's talking about, the panel itself weigh, they weigh more than 250 kilograms each. So it's a proper construction material. It's not a lining material. So, you know, the straw panels, be it a construction material as with Sam's product or as that wall lining with DuraPanel. It's actually really an amazing way to tap into the insulative qualities of straw. And to utilise one of the highest waste products that are available. So if you've watched any documentaries on how we raise animals for eating and the sheer quantity of cereal grains that are grown to feed them, plus what we humans eat in cereal as well, you know, straw is the world's most wasted resource. And a few weeks ago in my weekly UA News email, I shared a project that's happening in Fed Square in Melbourne by Joost uh, Baker, who, where he's doing a building that's uh, being constructed in Fed Square, and it's going to grow all the food that's required for the two chefs that are living inside it. So it'll be like a demonstration building. Two chefs are going to live and share their daily experience of growing and cooking and preparing the food that is grown on site. And DuraPanels being used for that project and Yosters put biochar into the panel mix before the, those panel panels were made. And that's an additive that improves air quality. So I'm gonna pop some links in the resources if you wanna check that out, it's super interesting. Now Sam spoke about the fire resistance level or the FRL measured for building materials. Now you may have seen this if you're building in a bushfire prone area. This is where materials are tested against AS1530 And the FRL measures the structural adequacy, the integrity and the insulation against fire heat outside. And it's done in those sort of three sections. So for example, a bowel flame zone is equivalent to an FRL of 30 slash 30 slash 30. And you may have seen this, you know, 60 slash 60 slash 60, 90 slash 90 slash 90. So a 30 slash 30 slash 30, it actually means that the occupant can survive 30 minutes in the building. So the building doesn't collapse in that time, the gases are not coming in and it's not getting too hot. So those are those three areas, the structural adequacy, the integrity and the insulation against outside fire heat. So in 30 minutes, the 30-30-30 means the building doesn't collapse in that time, gases are not coming in and it's not getting too hot. So This level, this rating, it's not about building survival, but it's actually about the occupant survival. So that's worth remembering. Now, straw bale itself, it doesn't have structural integrity. However, the Viva straw panels that Sam's company has created, they're currently being tested um, and Sam's actually hoping to get 120 slash 120 slash 120. So that's four times the bale flame zone requirement. Now the German test that he already has has 90 90 so he hasn't got the third component but he's uh, yeah he's waiting to get these properly tested and and should have that information soon. Now why natural building materials? Look Sam had a few reasons. Natural building materials they're low in embodied energy they're healthy with low volatile organic compounds they can regulate internal humidity and they can reduce airborne bacteria. Concrete, by contrast, incredibly high in embodied energy, so are fired bricks. Um, You know, there's a lot of energy in the extraction and burning and transport, particularly in concrete. And Sam actually shared a stat which uh, just floored me. He said that concrete is the second most used substance on the planet after water. Let me say that again. Concrete is the second most used substance on the planet after water. I actually had to fact check it because it blew me away. I thought plastic would be more. I thought it would be something like that. But from the research I found, it's, it's correct. There's three tons of concrete per year used for every person in the world. Three tons per person per year. Now in concrete, twice as much concrete is used as all other building materials combined. It's crazy. And an article written in February 2019 in The Guardian actually started with this. In the time it takes you to read this sentence, the global building industry will have poured more than 19,000 bathtubs of concrete. It went on to actually support the fact shared by Sam about concrete being the second most used substance, and it added that if the cement industry were a country, it would be the third largest carbon dioxide emitter in the world, with up to 2.8 billion tonnes, surpassed only by China and the U.S., so there's lots of reasons in that garden article as to why we continue to use concrete, uh, how we can improve the use of concrete, those types of things. So I'll pop that link in the resources as well. But natural building materials, that can be a great alternative to explore. And I think, too, it's just that simple fact of understanding that there are other materials out there to build homes from, that we were building homes with other materials well before we used concrete and brick. And, you know, the challenge, as I said before, can often be in finding local builders and tradespeople that are experienced in using them and then slotting into their availability as well. So if this is something that you do want to consider for your project, if you've been exploring natural building materials, it's really a case of creating your team early in the process so that you can work together collaboratively to really get that design, budget and timeline working all together. So that was part one of my Australian Building Bushfire Conference recap. I really hope that you found that helpful. You enjoyed hearing about some of the big takeaways and the learnings that I had from the Bushfire Conference. And if you head to the resources, you can find links about some of the things that I've discussed in this episode and also more information about some of the speakers that I've mentioned as well. I'll pop those in the resources for you. Now remember to head to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash rebuild. We've got all that we're sharing in the rebuild and build better series there. You can bookmark the link. You can keep checking back as it grows for an online hub for anyone who's rebuilding after bushfires or who's simply wanting to build better and more resilient homes. And please make sure you share this podcast with others that you know uh, will benefit from the help. I'd really love to the whole season to be reaching people who really need it and who can who can learn from the expertise and the experience and the knowledge that we're sharing here. Now, in the next episode, I'm going to be back. I've got part 2 of my recap of the Australian bushfire building conference. There was actually a consistent theme that surprised me that was shared throughout the conference by many of the speakers about the role that you as the homeowner, living in your home, can actually do to ensure its bushfire resistance and that this can have a far more significant impact on its bushfire resistance than the construction does so this is something that's not just about the construction it's something very different so I'm going to be back to talk about that in our next episode as always thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally until next time bye